0: So, When I went to get some higher education I was a proud University of Michigan Wolverine Had a crew I used to run with And at this time This formative time of life We're busy trying to figure things out Right? Religion and women and money And where you stand, politics, everything This cauldron It leads to some Heated conversations Some ridiculous discussion where sometimes I said things that no one should ever say. But that was cool. It was a safe space. At least, that's what I thought. Until one day, when one of the guys, when we wouldn't call him Johnny, he just looked weird. A bunch of us having a heated discussion about whether Shea Guevara was a hero or a murderer, and Johnny wasn't participating. strange. I couldn't figure out exactly what he was doing and I forgot about it until later that week when another buddy comes up and he says be careful what you say man Johnny's recording everybody what do you mean recording everybody I mean with the microphone he's recording what you say for what he thinks that Some of us are going to be successful. Somebody might be a bazillionaire. Somebody might be a senator. You never know. So he's recording everybody. Blackmail. You've got to be kidding me. I didn't believe it. Until the next day, in the student union, when I saw an actual microphone sticking out of his shirt pocket, I felt slapped in the face. Who? thinks like this? Who plans this far ahead just to get dirt? I didn't know what he had on me. It could be anything, anything. So I figured my only choice was to embrace the reality. If he wanted some dirt, then some dirt he would have. I called a buddy over right in front of Johnny. Hey, man, my big delivery from Colombia is coming in today. Let's make some money. I started asking questions like, hmm, how many strippers can I squeeze into my apartment without attracting attention? And sometimes I just look off into the distance and whisper, Johnny, I hope life doesn't make me kill again. I don't know what happened to the tapes, I don't. But Johnny, if you're listening, you think you're slick, but know this. Know this. You weren't the only one recording stuff that year. Today on Snap Judgment, from PRX and NPR, The Dirt. Amazing stories where someone finds out something they should not know My name is Glenn Washington. Please do not stray from your audio projection devices because you're listening to Snap Judgment. We're going to kick off today's episode, The Dirt on the Road. Tiny little motel off the interstate there in Austin, Texas. Davey Rothbard has a story.
1: You know, it's like three in the morning. My brother had gone out to make a phone call. I was watching some basketball game late night on ESPN. And the phone rings in the motel room. Nobody we knew knew we were there. So I'm like, who could possibly be calling? And it's this girl's voice. She's like, hi, who is this? And I tell her my name and I ask who I'm talking to. She says, it's Nicole. Once she asked the next question, I kind of knew where things were going because she said, what are you wearing? Then <laughs> I asked her what she was wearing and she's like, nothing. House. And I thought it had to be some friend of mine playing a joke on me or something like that. I just couldn't. It seemed too outrageous that some random girl was just calling my room to like get get sexy. But I got to say it was kind of intimate. It was kind of like ended and she said goodnight. And that was that. And I was like, whoa, what the hell just happened? Around seven in the morning, I remember the phone rang and I picked it up and it was Nicole. It was it was her whispering voice again. I was like, uh, "Look, uh, this isn't a good time. <laughs> Here's my phone number. Give me a call sometime." There was something intriguing about the mystery of who is this person calling me? You know, who, who is Nicole? Why is she calling me? A few nights later, we were in Oklahoma City, and you know, I used to actually sleep out in the van some nights. And I was sat in the van, and, and the phone rang, and it was Nicole. Uh, it's me. Function of your love. We started speaking intimately. Um, <laughs> but this time, you know, afterwards, we kept talking. And she started telling me a little bit more about her life. She was a nurse that worked in an old-age home. Her mom had just passed away and she was having a tough time getting through it. It didn't seem like just some random prank call or something, it felt like an actual person who had things on their mind but maybe was a little bit lonely, just like I had been a little bit on the road. For the most part it was just me and my brother in one van traveling for eight months on the road. So it can be pretty lonely when it's 2, 3 in the morning and you're going to sleep alone in a van. In Jefferson City, Missouri and it's raining to amplify the loneliness there's a song by the band Tapes and Tapes called Omaha it's a really sad lonely song (laughs) and I would put that song on and drink one more Corona or something and just fold myself into the bed in the back of the van and like pass out What was nice is that Nicole started to call me every night, every other night. You know, when you just hear somebody's voice alone, when it's in your ear, it's so bare. It's so, it almost like removes you from the physical world. I sometimes did pressure her to, you know, I was like, why are you always kind of whispering? It seemed like I wasn't quite hearing her real voice. Like, and I was just, I just didn't understand why there were certain things that she was being private and mysterious about. And it was just something that kind of nagged at me in the back of my mind, but I kind of tucked it away or just didn't even think about it too much. It it was really weird, because in the weeks that followed, it almost became like a regular relationship. We talked every night or every other night for a couple of months. And then this epic road trip came to an end. And then I got home, and While this had been so nourishing on the road, once I was home, there were real girls that were right in front of me. It just kind of faded. There was one night a few months later. It was like the next winter. I was driving on the highway and the van, the engine blew up and I pulled over on the shoulder and it was like some frozen winter Michigan night and I'm waiting there in the van for like 45 minutes. And sometimes I'll play this game where I'll start thinking about all the beautiful, sweet, smart girls that have come into my life and wonder how I've found a way to mess things up with every single one of them. And Nicole came into my mind. I hadn't talked to her in six months or a year or something. I just decided to try giving her a shout. And she answered. And I was like, Nicole, what? I didn't, didn't even expect to reach her, you know? I was like, what's going on? And she said, you know, it's uh, been a while. I was just like, you know, I let's meet up for real. I, maybe we could actually like be something. I probably didn't have any better prospects at the time, which is sad enough to say. And she said, all right, if you want to come down, then you should come down. I just hope you're ready to meet the real me. 10 days later, I'm in the air going down to Texas to meet this mysterious girl. I was hopeful. I felt pretty hopeful. There's an Applebee's on the north side of town. It's right on I-35. It's outside of Austin, Texas. Walked in there and I see in the back of the restaurant there's a woman staring at me sipping a Coke. She is at least 89 years old. I swear to God. (laughs) <laughs> I I could not believe I was like no way I walked back toward her and I was just like hi Nicole this old woman she's like there's no radishes in my soup I asked for radishes she's staring at me because she thinks I'm like a waiter or that I worked there or something she's just some random woman she's it's not Nicole and so I'm like breathing a sigh of relief and then and then I saw her She's sitting at the bar. And she is beautiful, first of all. She's, like, uh, wearing this, like, red skirt. Probably mid-20s or something. And I was like, all right, everything is right in the universe. I finally got, like, a break. Good things come to good people. So I just went over. I was like, Nicole, what's up? I'm sorry I'm late. It's me. I'm Davey. And she just looks at me, and she's like... Uh, you have the wrong person. This is I'm not Nicole. I'm like, what? This? Nah. Nah, dang it. I just kind of like run out toward the parking lot, charging out there. I crash into some guy on his way in. And I'm just looking around the parking lot. But I notice the guy I had crashed into on my way out he's still kind of standing in the doorway looking back out at me. This black guy, he's maybe 30 years old, shaved head, a little heavy set. He lifts his hand it's just like a little understated wave. And I just, I knew it was Nicole. And I was like, wow, that, that, okay, that is Nicole. Wow. I just walked right up to the guy and I was like, hi. Nicole. And he said, well, yes, you can call me Aaron. And I said, well, I'm Davey. Let's go get a drink. I felt a little ashamed and I think I'd even let it slip to a few of my friends in Michigan. I'm going down to Texas, hang out with this girl that I met. How am I going to (laughs) explain this to anybody? (laughs) Then there's just the disappointment of, oh, this isn't going to work out but you know, by the time you get to you know your 30s and your heart gets a little less fragile as you go, so it made more sense than anything else. He, Aaron, this guy, Nicole, said, uh, "You know, I'll have a Long Island iced tea." I was like, uh, "Give me two whiskeys." <laughs> Shot them both down. Then I was like, "All right, let's talk. What, what, what the hell's going on? What, who, who, what? Nicole, what, what the hell?" how did you find me at this Motel 6? Like, were you really at that hotel or what? He's like, no, no. He said, the Motel 6s in Austin were unique in that you would just go to this automated system where then you could punch in a room number and it would dial you onto the room. And he would just start dialing random rooms. If it was a girl answered, he'd hang up. He didn't want to talk to girls. He's gay, you know. He wants to talk to guys. If it was someone that seemed nice and open to it, like me, he would start whispering in this female Nicole voice. I started just trying to figure out, like, why would he resort to such a sort of weird and bizarre approach? I knew from all these months of our phone conversations that he was a really, like, kind listener and a good guy. I just didn't understand why he wasn't pursuing actual relationships. He's actually been doing this Nicole voice since he was, like, 14 years old. He had a crush on this guy at his high school. This guy was, like, the quarterback on the football team, and he hadn't come out and he realized he couldn't approach the guy in real life. But he just one night tried dialing this kid's house and tried speaking in this girly voice. And he convinced this football player that he was a cheerleader from some rival high school. For, for weeks and months that followed, he kept this thing going with this quarterback at his own high school. And ultimately, it fell apart. But that didn't stop him. He kept doing it. He said over the years he had dated dozens of guys, just like me. He told me that he had been in a couple of relationships with guys, some long-term relationships, and they'd ended really badly. He'd had his heart completely broken. So I started kind of putting the pieces together. Real relationships are really messy. They can be miserable. The early stages of a relationship can be really fragile. But this thing on the phone, this thing I have with Nicole, it was simpler, it was easier. It didn't entail all of the intense difficulties Having these kind of fantasy relationships and entirely based on phone calls, it kind of allowed him to have these relationships without really risking true intimacy. Despite the fact that he looked quite different than I had imagined her, <laughs> I still felt like this is the person behind the voice, the person that I've been connecting with for all these months. And that person is special to me. We hung out for a couple hours and we walked out to our cars together and I gave him a hug. I was just like, let's stay in touch. You'll always be a friend to me and I hope you know, I'll, I can be one to you. And he nodded He said, yeah. I just felt like, all right, back to reality, back to life. Let's see what else I can find out there.
0: That all happened eight years ago. But Davey and Aaron are indeed still friends to this day. They still talk on the phone, but, uh, you know,
1: not in that way. Sometimes when he calls me, now he'll use the Nicole voice at first. Those habits die hard, and I think Nicole is still in him. And so I think he's still doing it. I think Nicole is probably out there talking to some dudes right now. If you're listening to this, you know who you are. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, sorry to burst your bubble homie So I'm like Aaron come on dude let's find you like a real boyfriend that was Davey Rothbard the full account
0: of his phone relationship with Nicole can be found in his new book of personal essays My Heart is an Idiot check it out on our website snapjudgment.org that piece was produced by Julia DeWitt with sound design by Renzo Gorio. When Snap returns, we smuggle contraband through a major American airport, and we spend some time with the enormous and thriving Japanese-Lithuanian-Jewish community. For real. When Snap Judgment, the Dirt episode continues, stay tuned. Back to Snap Judgment from PRX and NPR. Okay, so I was not a telemarketer, right? Telemarketers were so beneath what I did. See, I was a telephone market researcher. I called and interrupted your dinner not to sell you something, but to ask you a bunch of time-consuming questions for corporate America's benefit. I worked amid a sea of telephone cubicles, minion after minion, waiting for numbers to pop up on their screen. And we, each of us, manning the phones, we were part of a team. We lived and died together on the whim of a single concept, targeted demographics. We couldn't just ask anybody our questions. No, we had to follow the demographic profile today we might need a 24-year-old Caucasian female who owns a Louis Vuitton bag. Tomorrow, we were searching for a 65-year-old Latin male who used a particular type of bowling ball. Targeted demographics. This nameless, faceless entity we labored for was very meticulous. If just one question from our precious survey went unanswered, the entire thing was thrown out. And we always save the two questions people like to hang up on us for, for last. First, which race are you? And second, how much money do you make? You save these questions for last for a lot of reasons, but really, By the end of the survey, you hope to have gained a rapport, a friendship, if you will, that allowed you to be all up in somebody's business. Because if they do hang up, it's right back to ground zero. And you couldn't fake it because Big Brother listened on the line. So every night the hunt was on. And you might think, okay, that's great. You don't find whatever demographic you're looking for. Eventually. You call it a night. Try again tomorrow. (sighs) No. The corporates didn't care about us. If you didn't find their precious demographic, you sat there until you bloody well did. No matter how long it took, you sat there till time stopped, until your eyes ran like rivers of sand. You sat there and you dialed and you dialed and you dialed again until you found the targeted profile. That's why we were a team. Everyone depended on everyone else. If someone didn't find the profile, no one could leave. And one night, we got a call sheet and everyone groaned. Most of it was cool. 18 to 34-year-old Caucasian female who used three different lotions. No problem. 44-year-old male who purchased at least five pairs of athletic shoes every year. Fine everyone's eyes froze at the last entry on the page. 67 year old Caucasian male with at least five bumper stickers on his car who daily uses an aerosol cologne and routinely feeds his cat dog food. And you hear it. What's an aerosol cologne? What type of idiot gives his cat dog food? But ours, was not to reason why. Ours was but to do or die. So we grabbed our phones and got to work. And from minute one, it was gonna be that type of night. Hangups, screamers, perverts. A man threatened me with excruciating bodily injury. We should have received hazard pay, but worse. We couldn't find any older white gentleman, and the clock was ticking. Seven o'clock, eight o'clock, nine, ten. People were getting panicky. We knew that if we pushed it far beyond ten o'clock, we were going to be there all night. And then, I got someone on the line. Hello, sir. Blah, 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 blah. Do you feed your cat dog food? Yeah. "'Do you have any bumper stickers on your car?' "'Well, I got at least five of them.' (laughs) "'And, sir, do you use any type of cologne?' "'Well, the wife likes to spray me down "'with something out of a canister.' "'I almost whooped. "'Word spread fast. "'Hope returned to people's faces. "'I kept rattling through the rest of the questions. "'My team had gathered around me at this point. "'I put the phone call on speaker.' I was putting on a little show, you know. I was going to be the one to lead us all home. We were close. Just two final questions, sir. I had all the confidence in the world. This guy was not going to let me down. First, sir, could you tell me which race you identify as? The man, he started laughing. (laughs) Which race? What do you think I am? An N-word. And the man, he did not say inward. word And I know, you're not one of those dirty either. I can tell by your voice. My mind went to a dark space, a blind raid space. I reached to slam the phone down and I could see them. My team pleading with their eyes, please, please. I didn't know what to do. I really didn't. Finally, I said, "Then, you are a Caucasian male. Is that right, sir? That's right. And how much do you make per year? He told me. Jerk off. And I hung up the phone. The place erupted in cheers, but that wasn't good enough. It wasn't good enough. I felt angry, ashamed, dirty. I looked at the number I had just called. I wrote it down on a piece of paper. I stuck it to our wall. I told everyone, I insist that everyone here call this number every single day. And when you do, don't be kind. From that day forward, that man received at least 300 calls an evening. Who is this? Why are you calling me? Why? 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 (laughs) Why? Because we were a team, and teams stick together. This week on Snap Judgment, we're digging up dirt, and it's strange but true that sometimes the best secrets are from people we don't even know. So I asked Team Snap to hit the streets, talk to complete strangers, and ask them to tell us a secret.
1: I dig in my nose when people aren't looking. I lied on my resume to get my job.
2: I failed my driving test three times, and that's really
1: embarrassing because I'm Asian.
3: I'm homeless, I live in a shelter. A lot of people don't
0: know that. I was a jock. I was notorious for cheating. So, <laughs> a teacher one day told all the class clowns, at least Joe knows how to sit by the
3: smart kids. <laughs> Two years ago, one well, of my partners told me they had chlamydia. My jaw just dropped, like, damn.
2: I think it's possible to foretell the future in one's poop. I'm Canadian. I believe I found out that my grandmother had done sex work via a listened-in phone conversation when I was a teenager.
1: My secret is that I cry when I cheer for marathon runners.
2: Uh, one time, this car mechanic screwed my
3: friend over, so we went back later with a BB gun while they were closed and shot out the windows. I don't even know. I mean, I'm 47 years old. We don't tell secrets no more. We tell it like it is.
0: <laughs> Big thanks to Jasmine DeCosta, Beth Morgan, and Mood Sadie for running those streets. Snap appreciates it. now then. It has been far too long since Snap regular contributor Joel Ben Easy stopped by the place. He wandered into Snap Studios recently and he recalled for us visiting Japan for the very first time. Joel, he had performed at a Jewish community center in Tokyo when the rabbi asked him to come help clean the Jewish graveyard.
2: Joel, he thought about it for a while but of course in the end, agreed. So we got to the graveyard in Yokohama and set to work. The grass was overgrown and and the gravestones were dirty and some needed dirt carved out of the letters and it's what you do for the dead because they, they can't do it themselves. And as we were cleaning, the rabbi came up to me and said, see that man over there? That's Joseph Shimkin. Go up and talk to him. I think he has a story to tell. And I went up and introduced myself. I said, are you Mr. Shimkin? He said, yeah, who are you? I said, I'm a, I'm a storyteller. I'm looking for stories. A storyteller? He spoke English with a thick Yiddish accent and threw in an occasional Japanese phrase, and even the Japanese phrases had a thick Yiddish accent. "Doma, And he said, if you're a storyteller, do you tell the story of Sempul Sugihara? And I said, no, I, I, I don't know who. What is Zempo Sugihara? He said, you should tell his story because he saved my life. He had my attention. He said, you know, I'm not from around here. This much I gathered. And he told me a story that went back to the late 1930s. He'd been from Poland and he was living in Kaunas, Lithuania. And as the war approached, as Jews were being rounded up, he began to realize he was trapped. And he told me a story of going from embassy to embassy to embassy looking for visas anywhere. United States, Australia, Great Britain, all said the same thing. We have enough Jews. No thank you. He said, so in desperation, I went to knock on the door of the Japanese embassy. He said, of course, it was crazy. Japan was entering an alliance with Nazi Germany. There was no way they would provide safe passage. He told me about going in and seeing a kindly man sitting behind a desk. He told him his story. And the man nodded very politely and said, You want a visa, but my government will not grant it, not even a transit visa to go through Japan. He said, But I will ask. And so this man, Chione Senpo Sugihara, wired to headquarters in Japan, and they wired back absolutely no. Mr. Sugihara looked at Mr. Shimkin a long time and finally said, and what will happen if you don't receive visas? And Mr. Shimkin said, if we don't receive visas, we will be taken off in trains and will be killed. He looked at a big box in the corner of the room and said, Come back tomorrow. The next day, Mr. Shimkin explained, he went in and saw that Senpo Sugihara had spent the entire night writing visas by hand. In those days, visas had to be done by hand, stamped officially, and he had done 300. And then he continued, and he continued with his wife, working day and night. He didn't stop to eat for the next three weeks, writing visas by hand, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. Word of this went to the Japanese government, Outraged, they demanded he return, they pulled his credentials, and he told me that the last he had seen of Sempo Sugihara was on a train, being taken back to Japan, writing visas and passing them out the window. Mr. Shimkin told me Sempo Sugihara had written 6,000 visas and so we escaped and we all came here to Tokyo some went on to the United States from Tokyo some went on to Great Britain after the war some went to Australia he said of all those Jews who came here to Japan I'm the last one left he said I like it here it feels like home the people are kind. And then he said to me, Mr. Storyteller, you should tell his story, the story of Sempo Sugihara. When I got back, I did some research on Sempo Sugihara. And exactly how many visas he wrote is hard to say. Estimates range from 1,600 to 6,000. The visas were transit visas, so a single visa might serve an entire family. Because of that, it's hard to know exactly how many Jews he got out of Lithuania. But the Simon Wiesenthal Center estimates that there are 40,000 Jews alive today because of Sempo Sugihara's action. What's clear, though, is what happened to Sugihara and his family. He was transferred to another post, then another, and another, and eventually stripped of diplomatic immunity so that when the war ended, he and his family spent 21 months of forced labor in a Soviet prison camp. When they finally did return to Japan, he was a shamed man. No more work in diplomatic corps, and he made his living any way he could for a time. He sold light bulbs door to door. Later, he found work as a translator. But during his lifetime, the Japanese government never forgave him. For what he did He died in shame It was Some years later I went back to Japan I told stories again At the Jewish Community Center And afterwards the rabbi came up to me And I said, hey, how was Joseph Shimkin And he smiled and said Well, two things happened last week One was that Joseph Shimkin Passed away We buried him in that very graveyard you helped clean up. The other was just before that. The Japanese Ministry of Education changed their official position on Sempo Sugihara. They decided his story should be told in textbooks. And now, every Japanese schoolchild will hear the story of Sempo Sugihara.
0: Joel Ben-Izzi. Thank you, Joel, for making sure the world does not forget. Joel Benizzi's memoir, The Beggar King and the Secret of Happiness, is available right now from his website, storypage.com. That piece was produced by Stephanie Fu. When Snap Judgment continues, a man of the claw commits a federal crime for real snap judgment the dirt episode continues do stay tuned Back to Snap Judgment from PRX and NPR. My name is Glenn Washington, and today's episode, The Dirt, is about secrets and lies and choices. And what do you do when you discover something that you'd rather not know? Or in the case of our next piece, what do you do when you receive a request to do something that you'd rather not do?
3: I'm a volunteer chaplain in a small jail in the northwest, and I work with gang youth and with migrant farm workers in a misty agricultural valley. So I spend time just walking between the cabins, meeting folks, and that's where I first met this guy, Arnufo. Now, unlike most of the other cabins, this cabin had no children. This was the single dude's cabin. Arnufo spoke only Spanish, and over on a bottom bunk sat Guadalupe, there were outliers in a culture where entire villages from Oaxaca cross borders and go into debt just to survive together. Arnufo left his wife and kids in Nayarit, Mexico, Guadalupe left Guerrero as a solitary bachelor. The two of them met in the asparagus fields outside Fresno earlier that year and decided to stick together. Now Arnufo, he had a proposition for me, so one night when it grew rainy and dark at the end of the season and families were starting to pack up and pull out for the winter. I stayed late in this cabin. He lifted up the old, oily mattress, gave me this fat wad of money, and I did not understand what he was asking for. So I asked him to repeat. Guadalupe helped me understand after the second, third time explaining, and I tried to repeat what I understood. You want me to turn this cash into three tickets for you, Guadalupe, and me to fly to New York together? That was it. Arnufo and Guadalupe, their only mission in the north is to make money and send it back to their families back home. So they got a prospect for a much better job year-round doing carpentry work out in New Jersey. But traveling across country by bus was too risky, with Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, agents at many of the dozens of Greyhound stations along the way. So they wanted to fly, and they wanted me to fly with them. Maybe the two of them would look less suspicious, he said, if traveling with a huero, or a tall white U.S. citizen, like me. They would not be staring at concourse screens of departure gates, looking down terminals like foreigners. They could casually stick by me as I knew where to turn, where to wait, where to get coffee, and how to look more bored while waiting for a flight. I'm thinking, I want to get out of this valley too. I told them, hell yeah, let's go to New York. When I was buying the ticket, I turned around and I said to my fiancé, Hey, you want to come with? You should buy a ticket. We can do this together. And this will actually help because my fiancé is half Panamanian. So maybe we'd look more like a family. Liz was nervous, but she trusted me. So that morning, bright and early, Liz and I pull up to the camps. It is empty, but the two dudes are waiting outside the door. I pulled out the boarding passes from my coat pocket. I explained... Were already checked in online. We could head straight past the airline counters and to the gate. Arnulfo leaned against the cabin with his shiny boots and round-billed Morelia soccer team cap. On the bench his only luggage was one of those clear plastic zip cases that come with new comforters. As I lifted it into my trunk I could see all his possessions he took with him into the future. A large plaid blanket, a toothbrush, worn thin flip-flops, and a large hardback Santa Biblia or Holy Bible. It wasn't until we drove south through the exposed landscape, hours before departure, that it finally dawned on me. I could get in serious trouble for this. Visiting the camps as a harmless chaplain was one thing, but now I would be aiding and abetting the movement of illegal aliens across the American interior. And it wasn't just me. I was dragging someone who trusted me into a potential mess of federal charges. Liz. What would happen? I kept worrying if we were caught. I scanned the road ahead for police white Suburbans twice pulled up alongside of us. And I'm getting all panicky, because the white Suburbans with a big green slash across the sides, those are the border patrol. Those are the ones that I've seen swoop into camps like the one that we just left, pulling out buckets full of those plastic zip cinch handcuffs. The Homeland Security Advisory
2: Threat Condition is currently at Orange.
3: When we got to the airport, all around us, families bustled on their way to their gates. We tried to look like we belonged to each other, just another mixed-race family. We went right past the check-in gates and into the lines for security clearance. We neared the official TSA podium. We stepped closer, slowly. The official, a gray mustachioed man, was passing over each boarding document and plastic ID. Liz and I cleared with a quick scrawl of initials on our papers. But then we turned around, we waited, and he looked at the boarding documents and the IDs of our new of Guadalupe and he took longer than normal. These men here with you? Yes, I said. The officer turned and called to others with badges around their necks. These IDs have no expiration date. Now I had called specifically the airport, explained several times to make sure that these Mexican national IDs, that they qualified as government issued, and they said no problem. Now I knew those national identity cards were legit, not forged. So apparently Mexican citizenship does not expire. And so this officer said, since you were together, all four of you, I need you to step over here And you're going to go down this lane right here And this was totally separate from all the other lanes We were headed towards an x-ray machine that ended up right next to the offices that had a big personnel-only door When you get to the other side, he said, we'll be waiting for you And you'll come with us for questioning That meant immigration had been called We'd been caught I felt like a failure A bad Coyote, a bad pastor. Liz looked at me with large eyes of fear, maybe with some blame. Would I lose her too, over this stunt? My toes curled inside my shoes. I took them off. I went through first, then the men. I put my watch back on, laced up, buckled up, and was ready for a firm hand to grab my upper arm and guide me towards the official personnel door. But no one came to get us. All four of us stood clustered together once again, looking around on the other side of the x-ray machine. There was no one. Vamos, I said. We grabbed our bags and headed down the wide-open concourse in plain sight. There's nowhere to hide. I tried not to run, but with my heart pounding in my ears, I felt my neck stiffening, waiting to hear behind me, excuse me, sir, sir, stop. Or maybe, hey, come back here. I'm looking for like, where's our gate? Where's our gate? Where can we turn out of this big wide open terminal? Luckily, only maybe 50 yards down the terminal is our gate. Whew, we're just gonna get right on there, we're gonna step right onto the plane, no one will ever catch us. That's when I turn the corner and I see the red flashing letters on the gate screen, flight delayed, one hour. We were sitting ducks. So, the four of us gathered on a padded square bench. Guadalupe slid out the only other thing he brought besides a toothbrush, a still glossy paperback Santa Biblia. He held it out to me. Cristóbal, he said. Él dice quizás leamos una lectura. He wanted me to read a passage for us. So, I decided on the story from the Acts of the Apostles, when Peter was in jail and when he escapes the authorities. Though he's chained, both hands and feet, and guards stand on his right and left side, angels wake Peter in the night and guide him past four levels of security. The angel tells him, Get up. Follow me. Put on your belt. Put on your coat. That's exactly what we had just done, coming out of x-ray security. And so, at that moment, a kind of sense of, of, of guilt of maybe what we were doing really disappeared, and I even saw a smile on Guadalupe's face that no longer did he seem like uh, some penitent illegal trying to bow before god for mercy for being doing something illegal he we seem to find ourselves in the middle of this story by the end of the story the attendant's voice came on it was time to begin boarding we'd made it i had us all get our passes out and then notice something missing our nufo and guadalupe's boarding documents were never signed by the agent like mine they were never cleared I looked over the attendant by the open gate. Sure enough, she examined every boarding pass handed to her. I got out a pen. I studied the initials on mine. I'd forged signatures before, like my mom's on checks for pizza and my dad's for field trip permissions as a kid. This was easier, right? Only two letters. I had Arnufo and Guadalupe go first. I watched the attendant carefully examine their boarding passes. She tore them in half. She said, Enjoy your flight. Each winter now, when our windows are sealed up, I can expect their calls. And to hear and get those text messages, long, all caps texts. On Newfal, one Christmas he's in Pennsylvania in in another labor camp. And another time he's calling me from uh, New Jersey in an apartment with a few friends he's found. And just this last Christmas, I'm getting text messages from him she tells me here we are with my whole family we're in a house that we built with the money that we saved up over all these years that he tells me he's finally in Nayarit, Mexico he's finally back home
0: it's about that time it is don't worry, Snap Nation. Don't worry. Full episodes, podcasts, pictures, stuff available right now at SnapJudgment.org. Our Twitter handle: SnapJudgment.org. Hit Snap on the Facebook. We love it when you do. Snap was produced by myself and a bunch of people with plenty of dirt in their fingernails. Always remember and never forget the Uber producer, Mister Mark Ristich. Pat Mercedes Miller knows that there is no future in the fronting. Anna Sussman doesn't even know what that means. Stephanie Fu enjoys bird watching. Renzo Goriol knows a foreign language. Nick Banderkoek knows some foreigners. Julie DeWitt knows that nothing is really foreign. And Will Urbina can climb a rope faster now than he could in middle school. Our summertime pit crew consists of Jasmine Acosta, Moose Zadie, Nikos Lofredo, and Beth Morgan. Now, if you and your good time buddies like to enjoy a five-martini lunch from time to time, do not charge it on your expense report to the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. You will receive a very sharply worded note. I promise you that, my friend. But many thanks to the CPB. PRX, the public radio exchange, once exchanged the public for radio. And that's how they got their name, PRX.org. And you know, this is not the news. No way is this the news. In fact, you could come home one night to an empty house. Empty. Except for a light in the spare bedroom. The bedroom no one ever goes into. There's an envelope with your name on it And when you open the envelope You find pictures Dozens of pictures of you As a little boy Pictures of you as a grown man And in each and every picture You're doing something bad Stealing an apple when you're four Stealing a necklace when you're sixteen You would sweat Perspire And finally marvel At how had someone done this How had someone traced your life of crime all the way back to this toddler photo of you literally stealing candy from a baby? And then, then you could laugh. You could laugh out loud and demand that she show herself, where are you? Where are you? And when the elegant lady steps from behind the curtain, you could say that you knew it was a trap. Nice try, mother. But I'm still going to tell Dad everything. You could do all of this. You could. And you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is in.